your presence that's here again. And Lord, right now, as we sit down to hear your word, I just pray that you would speak to us. That we would learn to just sit down and hear your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to deliver your word as I should, Lord. I thank you in advance for what you're going to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, we're going to be summing up our series from uh, rags to riches as we have been going on a quite a journey for the past couple of weeks. So today will be a sum up of that. And I just want to leave you with a few thoughts as we finish this series. So I pray that this um, message encourages you today. So what we've looked at in the past seven weeks um, in this series is all of the treasures that we have in Christ. We've been exploring the concept of how the riches that we have is not dependent on what we have, but rather on who we have. That when we possess Jesus, when we have Christ in our hearts and in our lives, we possess freely, without payment, without cost, without labor, all of the free riches that come through Christ. So we've been exploring that concept the past seven weeks. In week one, we saw the, the uh, basis of the scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 9. We explored what that means. We talked about what that verse that was the premise for this whole series, what it meant. Um, it meant not um, Jesus didn't come down and become poor to make us rich material-wise, but rather to give us riches that are eternal. So we looked at the definition of how um, Jesus went from riches to rags, so that we can go from rags to riches. In the second week, we looked at poverty and wealth as defined by the world and defined by God. You see, the, the Word of God has a different way of defining poverty and wealth. We looked at that, the definitions. The, the definition of the world is restrained and limited um, to the things, someone possessing material things, um, that has a lot of that is considered wealthy and someone who does not is considered poor or in poverty. But according to God's definition, the person that is truly poor is the person that doesn't have eternal life because that is true poverty according to the word of God. Week three, we saw the wealth of salvation, how salvation is the gift of God that comes through Jesus alone. Week four, we saw... Um, we explored Genesis chapter 22, uh, and we, we explored the story of um, Abraham and Isaac. We saw God's provision of salvation. How did God provide salvation? He became our substitute. Instead of me that should have died, instead of Isaac, Isaac represented you and I. Instead of Isaac, the lamb took the place of Isaac and that was a picture of what Jesus did. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, took the place of you and I. Week five, we looked at the wealth of righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness is not something that we merit. It's not something that we work for to attain. Righteousness, rather, is a gift of God. So the righteousness that Jesus has is credited to our account. This is all the wealth that we have through Christ. Number week six, we looked at the adoption into God's family that comes through Jesus again. We are God's children. God could have just pardoned us and forgiven us of our sin and given us eternal life, made us righteous, but he didn't stop there. He included us 
in his family, and therefore we have an inheritance. Everything that belongs to the Father, he gives to us, and we have access to him as our heavenly Father. And last week, we looked at the promised help of the Holy Spirit. We looked at how the Holy Spirit is also a gift. His presence in our life is a gift and not something that we can purchase or not something that comes uh, out of something that we do ourselves. So the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us, to lead us, to guide us, to speak to us is because of what Jesus did. Jesus said, I will not send him unless I go to the Father. So when Jesus accomplished his work, which was to bring salvation, he ascended to the Father, and then the Spirit of God came, and he's still working today. I love the song that we sang earlier today, that God is still working today. Come on, do we believe that, church? God is still working today. The Spirit of God is still working in our generation. Even in the time of Noah, if God worked in the time of Noah, God is working today. And I praise God for that, that we have access to the Holy Spirit and that He guides us and leads us. Today I want to finish this series by having two prayers that I want to live with you as we think about what we've learned in this series. Firstly, I want you to know there are many more riches that we have in Christ. For example, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, I'll be reading the Amplified. This is what Paul said. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, God's people, this grace, which is undeserved, was graciously given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the incomprehensible riches of Christ. And in brackets, the Amplified writes, that spiritual wealth which no one can fully understand. Paul is saying, my mission, my assignment that God had given me was to proclaim to the Gentiles, to us, to teach us all of the incomprehensible. We cannot fathom every riches that we have through Jesus Christ. So the more we know Christ, the more we know um, His Word and what He's done in our life, the more we have a revelation understanding of what treasures that He's done, that He's given us, sorry. This was Paul's assignment, to teach us this. The first prayer that I want to leave with us is Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 to 19. This is what Paul said to the church of Ephesus. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, great, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength, and it keeps on going, that was exerted in Christ. So the same power that Jesus had he has given us access, the Holy Spirit that is, to give us life. So Paul's, one of the prayers that Paul had for the church of Ephesus is that they may know. 
Notice the word know in this prayer, that they may know God, that they may know what they have through Christ, that they may have a revelation and understanding of the hope of the calling of God and the rich, glorious inheritance that belongs to them. That was the prayer of Paul, that their eyes may be open to know and understand. And my friends, I came to tell you today that everything that I spoke about in the past seven weeks, it's something that we can learn and walk out without truly knowing what it means and how it can apply in our life. When you read the book of Ephesians in chapter 3, Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ that was hidden for all of the generations past. But how in Christ, that mystery, which was how God will eventually bring the Gentiles and the Israelites, the Jewish people, and make them one group of people, has now been revealed. And that is because of the work of Jesus. The Bible says that in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul expounds on that. He speaks about through Jesus, the barrier, the wall of hostility that stood opposing between the Jews and Gentiles was broken off. You see, my friends, there's a lot of hatred in our world at the moment. There's a lot of wickedness and there's a lot of evil that is circulating our world at the moment. This is not nothing new. This has existed at all times. And I've come to learn that the human heart through ministry is wicked, as the Bible rightly says, and is capable of all things. I've seen this not just in people, I've seen this in myself. That when the right conditions are set in place, we can see the manifestation of what the human heart is truly capable of. And we see a lot of tribalism, a lot of hatred, even in our own nation back home. We see a lot of hatred going on, and we think the solution is with government, or we think the solution is with understanding certain things. No, my friends, true unity comes when we understand who Jesus is and what he has done to break off the wall of hostility. So we see this mystery, and Paul is begging, he's saying, when I kneel down and pray, I pray this for you, my fellow believers, saints of God. You know, the Catholic Church, one of the things that we often see through the Catholic Church is they will consider someone a saint if they lived a, an exceptional life that is giving and they, they have some certain gifts that they possess, they will be considered a saint and a church will be built on top of them and they will be called saint so-and-so and people even make prayers to them. Church, you don't become a saint, but saints are not the people that are selected few. Saints are every believers who are in Christ Jesus. We are saints. We are made holy, set apart, not because of work that we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. In this series, we have learned of the riches that we have in Christ. The point of all of these things that I've been talking about is that these riches are only found in Christ. If you miss that, you miss the whole series. The point is salvation and all of the things that are listed is only found in Jesus Christ and no one else. That righteousness is only found through Him. That adoption is only found through knowing Him. So knowing Christ has everything to do with knowing God. Jesus said, if you know me, you know my Father. So we have been talking about everything that we possess through Jesus, and today my prayer as we finish is that you may truly know him. That's my prayer for us, my friends. I pray that you may know him, 
You know, I could know a lot about Donald Trump from a distance. I could know many facts about Donald Trump. I could know his life, where he was born, what year he was born, who he's been married to, how many kids he has, and all of these things. So I can say in a way that I know of Donald Trump, but if you ask Donald Trump, you say, I never know, I don't know who Yo-Yo is. In the same way, we can know a lot of information about God, we can know a lot of facts about who God is, but we don't know Him relationally. And that is my prayer for our generation. My prayer is that you don't just have an association with a building, that you don't have an association with a Christian family, but you truly know Him for yourself. Let's not confuse going to a building as equating to knowing God. Let us not confuse doing religious activity as knowing God. The Israelites had moments in their history, their story is filled in the Old Testament with moments where they did the sacrifices, they presented the offerings, they gathered in festivals, but God said, I don't know you. In one of the passages, I think it was in the book of Amos, God said, I detest your gathering." When I read that, I'm like, look at the power of that word. What God was saying to them is, your gathering, your religious gathering, I detest it. Your singing, I detest it. Why? Because you live wickedly, but you gather and practice empty, hollow, ritualistic, um, ritualistic gatherings without you knowing me. And he said, and he called out to them, he said, come and know me. Know who I am. I desire mercy. I desire that you would go and help the orphaned and all of these things that God lists in that book. Jesus himself said in the book of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, the following thing. Not, any, not everyone who says to me, listen to me, this, this is so important. Not everyone, let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Jesus is teaching us here that many will say, Lord, Lord. Many will say, Jesus is my Lord. Many will say, I'm a Christian. Many will say, I believe. But the question is, are we submitted to the Lordship of Christ? The importance is not our mouth affirmation. The importance is our heart submission. Have we submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? You know, in the book of, in the Gospel of John, the disciples were gathered with Jesus, and this is before uh, Judas betrayed Christ. They're all there. Judas had the same experience as the other disciples. He ate with them. He heard the same teachings that, that the rest of the disciples um, heard. He did all these things, and Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Do you know what's fascinating? I don't know if you've ever picked it up. They all said this, Lord, is it I? The true disciples, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And then when he came to Judas, do you know what he said? Rabbi, is it I? You see, uh, it's very subtle, but in that description, you see that to Judas, Jesus was rabbi. 
teacher. But to the rest of the disciples, Jesus was Lord. He was their master. He was their savior. They submitted to him. And that is my question for us today. My prayer is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus personally? I say this with conviction because I lived many years without knowing him. I mean, I attended Bible study with my mom and dad every day at home. Forced, I was forced to do it. Every night we had to go to Bible study. We had, we had to sing songs. I knew all the Ethiopian Amharic gospel songs. I attended church with my parents every single week until I was of the age where I can say, no, I don't want to go. I had to go with them. I mean, when I greeted people, I said, God bless you, my brother. God bless you, my sister. I had an association with the church building. I even gave tithes when we, gave, when we began to gather as youth group. I began to give without really not knowing him. But thank God that he was gracious to me as he's gracious to us today. That he waited patiently. That it was on that day when he finally opened my heart and my eyes that I can truly say, then I knew the Lord. So my friends, my prayer today is do we know him? Do we know him? Or do we know religious activity? Or do we know doing things for him without truly knowing him? So my prayer is that we will truly know him by submitting to his lordship. The second prayer and last one that I have, we'll finish with this and spend about five minutes in prayer, is that we may live life with an eternal perspective. What I have tried to help you to see in this series is that what you have in Christ Jesus are eternal treasures that you can never lose and that you can never uh, make a loss on. I'm beginning to get into investment now and learning about stocks and even cryptocurrency. I'm trying to get my mind around crypto and all of these things. And one thing that people always tell me is, yo, yo, the stock market and crypto and all of that is very volatile that it's very unpredictable. Even the, the investments in the world that I've seen as very secure, like house, we've seen in the, in, in a couple of years ago in the US that the housing market completely collapsed. That million dollar houses overnight were $100,000 worth. And we've seen how volatile, unpredictable that the treasures of this world are. But what we have learned through this series is the treasures that we have through Jesus, nothing will ever take it away. Jesus said, store treasures in heaven where the, the thieves will not come in, where it will not rust and it will not go off because the treasures that we have in Jesus are eternal. My prayer is that we may live life with an eternal perspective. This changes everything. Listen to me very carefully. The temptation is in thinking that this life is it and this is all that there is. The truth, however, is that everyone is destined for eternity. Everyone is destined for eternity. Some to eternal life, some to eternal death. In Luke chapter 16, you don't need to go to it, but in Luke chapter 16, if you want to read it for your reference, verses 19 to 31, Jesus shares a powerful parable about a rich man who is unnamed and a poor man named Lazarus who is a beggar. And as Jesus begins to share this story, he speaks of how Lazarus, this is the only parable that Jesus actually names the character. 
He always says there once was a rich man or this, a poor man. But in this particular parable, he named the man Lazarus. So Lazarus was the poor beggar. He sat at the gate of this rich man's house. And the rich man, as Jesus explained the story, he lived in luxury every single day. But the poor man Lazarus, he begged at the gate of the rich man and he longed to eat the crumbs that fell from from the table of the rich man. He longed to eat the crumbs that fell from his table, but the rich man didn't care at all about this man, and he lived his life in luxury, disregarding his relationship with God. In verse 22, Jesus says in this story that the time came for the beggar to die, that the time came for the rich man to also die. You see, my friends, what we need to understand is that One thing that 100% of the people in this room and those who are watching will go through is that there will be a time where you will die. There will be a time where you will go over to eternity. No matter what the rich do to attempt to escape death, death is something that we will all experience. But how we experience death when we're in Christ and we're not in Christ is completely different. When we are in Christ, do you know what the New Testament refers to death as? Falling asleep. I dare you to study it. It's fascinating. It says that the saints have fallen asleep because we'll wake again to be with the Lord forever. But death is only conquered in Christ alone. There's an area of science called cryonics. I don't know if you've ever heard about this. But now it's picking up more momentum. I've preached about this before. But in the science of cryonics, the idea is to freeze the human body. This is not science fiction. This is not a a sci-fi movie that I'm talking to you about. This is happening in our world today. And I watched the story of this particular older lady. She's a scientist and she actually, very wealthy, she actually built her own cryonics company and she has frozen the bodies of her grandmother and a a great-grandmother and all of these things and the idea is to freeze the body for as many years as it needs to be and the, the thinking behind it is science will eventually catch up to a point where we figure out how to live forever on earth and then the body will be unfreezed and then the technology that's available then will be implanted in these bodies. That's the desperate length that people are going to today to escape death. But my Bible tells me that death is a sure thing. Death will come and there's no escaping death. No matter how the rich try to avoid death, death is a sure thing. Like the rich fool in this parable, this man neglected what was true riches and lived in luxury at the expense of his relationship with God. I say this not because Jesus mentions that in the story, but because of what happens in the, in the following events. The rich man, the Bible tells us, Jesus said this, he went to hell where he was tormented in agony in the fire. Lazarus went to heaven by Abraham's side. The rich man then asks Abraham to send Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in water so he can touch his tongue to make him, to give him some relief from the burning fire that he's experiencing in hell. Abraham then responds that there is a chasm 
between heaven and hell that I cannot come to where you are and you cannot come to where I am. And, and the rich man, what he says next is fascinating. He then says to Abraham, I have five brothers. Please send Lazarus to warn them. <laughs> He's now realized that he's lived his life thinking that he lived it in luxury, in riches, but he really lived it in poverty because he didn't have an eternal perspective of his temporary condition. So he lived in luxury at the expense of neglecting the true riches that can come only with a relationship with God. So he came to realization, he's like, if I cannot escape it, if it's too late for me once I die, by the way, religion has manipulated this fear of death so many years, including Christianity. That's why there was the Reformation 500 years back by Martin Luther, because the Catholic Church were preaching this heretical teaching because people didn't have access to the Bible like we do. It was only the priests that had access to the Bible. So they told people that if your loved one died, and you're not sure if they went to heaven or to hell, if you want to make sure you pay a certain fee, it's called penance, you pay that fee, and when you pay that fee, they will pray to God so that their soul will go from hell to heaven. Heretical teaching, capitalizing on the, on the grief of people to make money. And this is where Martin Luther went and he protested against this. As he read the Bible, he saw that it is only by faith alone. That's where we get faith alone. And he stamped his thesis on the, on the door and he was persecuted for, them, for that. Death cannot be escaped by anyone. So he said to the, the, going back to the parable, he said, I have five brothers, please send this Lazarus. Notice that in hell, you're not atoned for your sin. <laughs> you're, not, you're still the same way. He still thinks that he's the rich man having oppressing the poor man to get him to do whatever he wants to do and he's saying can you get Lazarus that poor man to go back to the world and tell my brothers to warn them to not come to this place then Abraham replied they have Moses in other words he's saying they have the scriptures let them listen to the scriptures and the warning is already in the scriptures but the rich man says, no, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. That's when they'll truly believe. But Abraham said to him, if they don't listen to the scriptures, they will not be convinced, even if someone raises from the dead. Isn't that what our generation asks? Yo, yo, I will believe if you show me a miracle. I will believe if I see something supernatural happening, then I will believe. And Abraham says, yeah, you will not believe. The scriptures are sufficient to give us faith to believe. Do you know what's ironic in this story? Later on, Jesus actually raises a man named Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, from the dead in John chapter 11. And do you know what happens next? When the Pharisees, because Jesus in this story is addressing to the Pharisees, when the Pharisees heard about the resurrection of Lazarus, four days was passed impossible by medical in the medical field impossible for someone to come to life after four days the stones have been rolled the body has decayed there's smell coming out of the tomb but Jesus he is the resurrection and the life come on he said to Martha Martha don't you know that I am the resurrection and the life that if you believe in me that your brother would live 
She said, I know that he will be raised in the last day. She didn't understand what Jesus meant. Jesus was not saying the resurrection of the last day. Jesus was saying he will rise today. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. He says, take him out of his grave clothes. And the Pharisees hear about this. They gather together and John chapter 11, read it for yourself. From that day on, they began plotting the murder of Jesus. No matter what miracle the Pharisees saw, what they neglected was what the scriptures pointed to. They saw the resurrection of Lazarus, and yet they began to plot the death of Christ. You know what we have in the scriptures is the eternal perspective on everything. Do you know why I love the Word of God? Do you know why I love getting into the Word of God and reading it? Because this gives me insight on every area of my life, how I treat my wife, how I raise my kids, how I lead people, how I interact in my workplace. Everything I need for life is given to me in the Scriptures. The things that I cannot see, God can see, and it gives me His perspective. And the more my mind is renewed by the word, the more I begin to see things from an eternal perspective. Therefore, I don't jeopardize relationships because of temporary situations or being offended against. Come on. Because we have an eternal perspective on the things that we're going through in life. A writer by the name of Andrea Lee writes the following. Without an eternal perspective, we misinterpret the details of our lives. Here's how that happens. We see anything that hinders our comfort and convenience in the present as a nuisance or even as an enemy. We despair over lost opportunities and frantically clamor for relational and physical fulfillment. We seek satisfaction for the infinite longings of our heart by forcing, demanding, and manipulating our way through life. We misinterpret and reject hardship of all kinds because we don't have an eternal view of God's eternal picture. My friends, what I want to pray for you in the last prayer that I have is that we learn to live our life here on earth with an eternal perspective. Jesus lived with an eternal perspective. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If you can go to Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Everything that Christ did on earth was with an eternal perspective. What Jesus did by enduring all of the, all of the uh, hatred of people, all of the name callings, they called him demon-possessed, he carried the cross, he was beaten. What made him endure all of that was because the joy that was set before him of seeing salvation come to humanity. Jesus was driven by seeing the, the eternal significance of his life's, of this earth life's mission. Paul lived with an eternal perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, this is what Paul said, we do not lose heart. You can read it in context, but I don't have time to go back. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inward, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what is on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, Francis Chan is, a, is a, one of a, a Christian preacher. He illustrated this in a beautiful way, and I've done it, and I've used that illustration before. He got a rope that is very, very long rope, and at the tip of the rope, he put a, a marking of a sticky tape. And he said, this marking of the sticky tape on the tip of one rope is the time, the maximum time that we have on earth compared to eternity. And he said, we are, he marked on that little sticky tape, he marked one spot. You might be here, some of you might be closer, some of you might be at the beginning. We worry about this stuff and we neglect all of that. You know, that's what we do when we despise eternal blessings that we have and we throw away the salvation and the favor and the grace that comes through Jesus because our eyes are fixed on the temporary and the now. The Bible says that Esau wept and he longed for the blessings that come as a firstborn right, as a right that he had as a firstborn child. He cried, he repented, he did all of this, he could not get it. Why? Because for miserwat, for lentil soup, he sold away his, his inheritance. You know, that's a beautiful picture of what we do. We get so caught up with the waves of our generation, with what's hot and what's, what's out there and what everyone else is into, with the most popular things, and we throw away, we throw away eternal significance that we have. Paul here says that his sufferings are light and momentary. His troubles that he endured are light and momentary. Let me, let me just read to you some of the things that he went through. I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was bitten with rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from the rivers. I have been in danger from bandits. I have been in danger from my own countrymen. I have been in danger from the Gentiles. I have been in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in, the, in danger from the false brothers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul is saying, my light and momentary troubles. Why? Because he's weighing it against eternity. When I think about the glories that are going to follow for eternity, my perspective on my situation on earth shifts and changes. 
When my eyes are not seeing that, I want to give up with every trial that comes before me. But when my eyes begin to see the glories that are going to come, when I begin to walk and live life with an eternal perspective, I see this marriage problem as a momentary light affliction that I will endure, that I will overcome because God is with me. I see this breakdown in my, in my workplace. I see me losing a job, not as something that I need to, to lose my life for, but I see it as a momentary affliction, not because I'm a superhuman being, but because I'm weighing it against the eternal glory that are mine in Christ Jesus. For Paul, they were light and momentary because he thinks of the eternal glory that outweighs all of these things. And this is just some. He describes this in many other books of all the things that he goes through. In Corinthians, in one of the places, he said, I despaired of life so much that I said, I had enough. I despaired of life itself. But he said, God delivered me from every situation that I encountered. What a way to live. When we consider the riches that you have and what awaits you, people can talk ill about you, but God has the last word in your life. You can encounter all sorts of traumatic experiences, but you will recover because God, his riches are readily available to you. We have an eternal perspective on our momentary condition. We can be seriously sinned against and offended, but we're given strength to forgive the offender. Paul fixed his eyes on the unseen, the eternal things. As Jesus endured the momentary pain of the cross by looking at the joy of salvation to follow, we also live this momentary life. I say momentary because not because life is not long, but because life is short and moment compared to eternity. We live this momentary life with our eyes on the eternal things. Paul fixing his eyes on the unseen is really a description of living by faith. How does faith come? Paul tells us in Romans. It comes by hearing the word of God. So what, what does that mean? As we read God's word, the Holy Spirit convinces us of the truth of his word and it changes our perspective. So the way that I viewed my condition as I get and engage into God's word, the spirit of God enlightens me to understand the word and therefore rewires the way that I think. That's why the Bible says by renewing of the mind that will be transformed into a new person. Transformation comes by the renewing of the mind. Psychologists and counselors, they understand the power of the mind. They understand that rewiring our thinking pattern will change our life because that's what the Word of God says. That's why the Bible says think of such things that are lofty, that are pleasant, and all of these things because our thinking is shaped by our worldview. As I finish up today, I want to give you a quick illustration. You know what we have in the scriptures? We have the joy of knowing the end of the story. We know how the story ends. When you flick your Bible to Revelation, the end of Revelation, we know how the story ends. Let me ask you this question. Who loves thriller movies here? Put your hand up if you love thriller movies. You've got one. I love thriller movies. I, I would rather watch a thriller movie than, than any other. I just love the intensity of just knowing what's going to happen next. Now, let me ask you a following question. Have you ever watched a thriller movie more than once? 
Anyone here watch twice? Are you? I don't know if she's weird like that, but she, she doesn't mind watching movies more than once. Anyone else? We've got Rodas there as well. Now, is, is the way that you watch a movie more than once, is it different the second time? 100%. Why? Because the first time, all of the anxiety that is with it, you know, your heart is racing and pumping, is he going to save his kid? I will find you and I will kill you. When he says that, is he really going to find him? And every turn, your heart is pumping. You know, is that going to happen? You don't know what's going to happen next. But then if you watch that movie again, again, you have this confidence, oh, he's going to rescue his daughter. He's going he's gonna to find her and he's going to get the people. So you're not watching it the same way that you watch it the first time around. <laughs> that is what the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 12, that we are surrounded with a cloud of witnesses who are testifying to us that they know how the story ends. We have this great cloud of witnesses that say, hey, hey, I've seen God work in my life. I've finished my race, and I'm a testimony. If God did it for me, he can do it for you. We know through the scriptures that Jesus is coming back, that Satan will be eternally condemned. We know that we will be with the Lord forever, that the Lord rewards all of us for the work that we do for his kingdom. Do you know what Jesus said? Even the cup of cold water that you give to someone in need is counted by God. Everything that we do sacrificially for the kingdom of God will be rewarded in eternity. So I want to finish off with this illustration. I want you to know that we live not with our heart pumping, with anxiety in this life, not with knowing what's going to happen of me, what's going to become of my life. No, in every turn, in every corner, we know one thing. We know how the story ends, that my life is in the Savior's hand, that he will not permit anything, anything without his permission will not come into my life. And what I go through, he will give me the strength to endure. Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 says this. Malikati can come up. The Bible says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I want to just pose this challenge to you today. That we begin to really pay attention to how we live, that we don't live unwise lives, that we don't waste opportunities, but we make the most of every opportunity that is before us. You know, when we have an eternal perspective, our priorities change. This is what Paul said. Do you know what Paul's priority was before Christ opened his eyes? His priority was to destroy the people of God. His main goal was to go from house to house, arrest these people called Christians that follow this man named Jesus. His main mission was that. But when he encountered Jesus, when his eyes were opened, his priorities changed. What he boasted in, he began to despise. In Philippians, he talks about that, doesn't he? That if you want me to boast of the things of this world, I was a Hebrew of Hebrew, I had the education, all of these things. But now, because I know Christ, I consider them as rubbish. Paul's priority changed. His vision changed. He went from destroying the church to building the church. 
My friends, when you know Christ and who he is and what he has done for you, your priorities change. Your dreams and your goals change. How you live on earth changes. How you live on earth changes. Close your eyes and let me pray for you. My first prayer for us today is that we may know him. I'm talking about truly knowing him. And knowing that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And knowing that can only come about because of him. When he opens your eyes and, you, and the light of the gospel floods your heart, you've got that aha moment. You've probably heard the gospel hundreds of times, but all of a sudden you believe it. You trust it. You, you put your confidence in it. 